From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Throughout the pandemic, we've heard about herd immunity as a strategy to help get things under control. Here to talk about the challenges in reaching herd immunity is physician scientist Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science, and he specializes in infectious disease. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Well, thanks for having me, Amber. Let's start with a description of what herd immunity is. So that's a that's a question a lot of people have a have an interest in these days. So, you know, for um, for uh, let's just speak specifically about COVID, right, which is uh, caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2. Uh, for for COVID to continue to persist in uh, uh, any kind of area, whether it be Central New York or the United States or the world. Uh, there have to be susceptible people, right? So the virus can be transmitted from one person to another. If everybody is susceptible and nobody has any immunity, then it's very easy for the virus to go from one person to another. But if you have within a group of people, a certain percentage of them that are uh, immune, either because they've been recently infected or because they have been immunized, then it's very difficult for that virus or becomes more difficult for that virus to pass from one person to another. So the example um, uh, that I kind of use is imagine, uh, imagine a line of 10 people and every one of them is susceptible to infection. Once that first person gets infected, it can go down the line very quickly. But if let's say person two through person eight is immune because they've been vaccinated, even though that first person can get infected, it's gonna be very difficult for the infection to ultimately get down to that ninth person. Um, so that's it. So it's, it's kind of like the overall immunity within a population uh, such that even people who are not immune benefit from that overall immunity. So how do you, in, in terms of enough immune people, how many is enough? Is, is it a simple mathematical calculation or does it depend on population density, rural versus urban, or is it something something more? So there are there are calculations that that you can do. Um, but what I would say is, you know, I I I don't do them. <laughs> there are because there are to me, there are so many different factors that play into um there are so many different factors that play into that equation. Uh, number one, uh, number two, um, you know, and this is, you know, this is just my opinion. Uh, those factors are are always changing. They're not static. For example, so so one of the factors that you take into consideration is um, the level of, uh, you know, a person. Are they immune or are they not immune? Well, immunity is not a static. Um, a, a static measure, right? So I could be infected today and I'm going to have a certain level of immunity uh, tomorrow. And then a month later, it could be different. And then six months later, it could be different. And we know that this is the case. And the same thing could be true for immunity imparted by vaccination, right? So that's a, that's a changing dynamic within a population. Uh, you know, another factor is, well, what is the infectiousness of that virus? You remember very early on in the pandemic, we were making all sorts of comparisons to, well, how infectious is influenza and how does SARS-CoV-2 compare to influenza? Um, that's also a, a changing dynamic because of variants, 
right? So the, the, the strain that originally came out of China has a certain level of infectiousness associated with it. Well, the UK variant and the South African variant and the Brazilian variant and the Indian variant and the New York and California variants, it's different. So it's, it's uh, and, and, and a lot of those are all co-circulating within the United States now. So there's just so many moving parts and so many kind of uh, different factors that, that play into it. A, a, uh, to me, a simple math equation is not going to, it might be able to give you the snapshot in time of what things look like today, but I don't think they allow you to kind of prognosticate, well, what's it gonna look like in a month or two months or, you know, or three months. Um, so, you know, for something like, uh, for something that's, uh, uh, you know, something like uh, polio or, or uh, pertussis or measles and, uh, or influenza or SARS-CoV-2, it's the percentages could all be, could all be different. So immunity can be from the vaccination or from natural immunity if you had COVID-19, but do I hear you correctly? We don't know how long that immunity lasts for either of those situations? I think we have some preliminary information and we have some idea. Um, what I would say is that, uh, you know, not all immunity is created equal. So if you just take people who get naturally infected, um, and uh, and they survive their infection, uh, you know, they are going to have, there's, there's great variance in those people in terms of uh, what we measure, uh, like antibodies, for example. Um, it, it, it's it's going to be, uh, you know, 100 people, um, they're not going to all have the same antibody profile after they get infected. It depends upon, you know, what was their pre-existing immune status prior to being infected? Did they get a mild infection? Did they get a severe infection? Do they have underlying um, medical problems like diabetes or, or hypertension? And it's going to create variants within that group. And then over time, the immunity is going to wane. How quickly it wanes is also variable on, but, you know, based on the, uh, on the person. Now, if you take vaccination, um, it's much less variable. So uh, the immune response that we measure within a vaccinated population, it's much tighter. You know, the data is much tighter. Um, and although we know that the immune responses decline over time, you know, we only have data out to a certain, uh, to a certain time point, right? You know, uh, protection data, you can look in the, uh, in, in the lay press and in the scientific literature, the, the, what the companies have kind of Moderna and Pfizer, BioNTech, et cetera, um, you know, it looks like we're good out to at least six months with vaccine-induced immunity and uh, protection. But this is why these studies are multiple years in duration. This is why we need real-world data uh, following people um, uh, remote from uh, remote from vaccination. You know, months and years after vaccination. So, so it's it's an evolving story. But not all immunity is um, is created equal, and it's very difficult to. Uh, predict what the, you know, what the bottom would be because everyone wants to know what that'll be because everyone wants to know, well, when am I at risk again and do I need a booster? So those who are not immune include people who, for whatever reason, did not get vaccinated. Is there a significant number of people with health conditions that either prevent them from being vaccinated or maybe the vaccine is not working in them? Yeah, so, you know, the only the only absolute contraindication 
for being for you know for being vaccinated. So the only reason why people should absolutely not be vaccinated is if they have a known allergy to a component of the vaccine. So that's you know so starting from that point that, that those are really the only people that the FDA has said you should not take these vaccines. Everybody else it's on the table. And um so uh you know people that have had other life-threatening re uh, reactions to other vaccinations that's something they you know they need to discuss with their you know with their medical provider and weigh the risk and benefit because you know the same people who have problems with their immune system the same people who have uh you know diabetes or cancer or who are actively receiving chemotherapy or they have other um, immunosuppressive conditions or they're, or they're taking immunosuppressive medications. Um, those are the same people that we want to be protected and that we want to be vaccinated because they have a higher likelihood of a bad outcome if they do get infected. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I, I, it's tough for me to answer the question specifically like, oh, you know, 10% of the US population has medical conditions that would prevent them from getting vaccinated. But you know, my 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 guess is that it's very low. It, it, the the people, by and large, who are not vaccinated right now in the United States, it's either because they're too young, or they don't have access for some reason, or they've elected to not be vaccinated. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air, and your host Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, a physician scientist specializing in infectious disease, who was also involved in the trials for the Pfizer BioNTech COVID vaccine. So I want to ask about how we get to herd immunity, and what's wrong with the suggestion of letting infection spread through children, for instance. Yeah, so that that was actually a proposal. There was a proposal that was. Um, I think it was called the, the the Barrington Accord or something like that, um, where a couple of scientists uh, had proposed that because this infection is mild in most people or most people who get infected don't have any symptoms at all. Because of that, what we should do is we should protect the most vulnerable uh, with public health interventions like, um, you know, wearing masks and physical distancing, et cetera. Uh, everybody else, we should have them live their life, and if they get infected, it's okay because it's going to be um, a low-risk event for them. And then by doing that, we're going to speed up the process of generating herd immunity, uh, you know, within uh, within the United States and beyond. And um, so that was the proposal. Um, and there are some places that actually sort of embraced variations on that theme, and so. Uh, you know, Sweden is one of the places that, uh, you know, that did that. The The problem is that, um, you know, I, I agree that the vast majority of people who get exposed to SARS-CoV-2, if they do get infected, there's going to be a significant percent that don't have any symptoms. There's going to be a significant percent that have symptoms, but they're, they're very mild. They don't even need to go to the doctor. Um, and the people that do develop symptoms, you know, of that group of people, the vast majority, 85%, um, are going to be completely fine and are going to do well, even if they need to go to the doctor and even if they need to come into the hospital. And then 15% of people are going to have severe or critical or critical disease and might die. And it's a, you know, overall, it's it would be a very low number. But the 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 problem with COVID was not is not necessarily the number of people who are going to be hospitalized or the number of people who are going to die. It's the fact that 
the entire planet was non-immune <laughs> and the entire country was non-immune. So even if you have a very small percent of people who get infected uh, who need to utilize healthcare resources, it still is gonna overwhelm the healthcare system. It is still going to crush the hospitals and crush the emergency departments and um, uh, you know, pediatricians offices, et cetera. And that's exactly what happened in places that did not strictly implement or adopt uh, public health uh, interventions and hospitals ran out of PPE, they ran out of ventilators, they ran out of hospital beds, they ran out of uh, you know, all sorts of other resources that are required, not just to take care of people with COVID, but to take care of the person without COVID who needs to be in the hospital, the trauma patient, the, uh, uh, the person with heart failure, the person with diabetes, the person with a stroke. So um, it's kind of that, that secondary cost of COVID that's why I think it was a bad idea to begin with. And, and I would say, you know, everyone applauded uh, Sweden, but they ultimately, they stopped that, uh, they stopped that um, approach and adopted uh, what most other countries were doing in terms of lockdowns because their death rate was um, beyond what other countries in the, in the EU um, were, uh, were experiencing. And it just, it didn't, uh, it didn't, it didn't work. Now we have herd immunity for polio and measles and other diseases. How were we able to achieve that? Vaccination. So vaccination for those other diseases is more widely accepted. Well, it's mandatory. You know, it's um, yeah. uh, it's mandatory for uh, in many in many locations and in many institutions. Uh, you know, for kids to go to school, for you to work in certain environments. For you know, it's. It's just mandatory and it's accepted and uh, people, people do it. It's like wearing seatbelts. It's like not smoking inside. It's uh, uh, like wearing helmets. If you ride a motorcycle, it's just, uh, it's, it's like all of the security changes that were made after 9-11. It's just things that are designed to protect the greater good and people accept it and they incorporate it into their life. And that's what they do. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about herd immunity after this short break. Thanks for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. My guest is Dr. Stephen Thomas, the director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. We've been talking about herd immunity. Well, so far, there's not a vaccine for kids, uh, although it's in development. Um, and I understand there are some people who are still on the fence about getting vaccinated, some who will only be vaccinated if they're required to, and some that are flat out refusing. C can we reach herd immunity without these people? Uh, my, my personal opinion is that at a national level, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to reach uh, herd immunity and you know i've written about this uh, in forbes and um you know because of the percent of people who remain on the fence and the people who said i'll only be vaccinated if i'm required to or i'll never be vaccinated uh because of the large percentage of the population that is under 12 years of age because now you can get at least the pfizer vaccine down to 12 years of age sounds like moderna is probably going to ask the fda to expand the age range that people can get the moderna vaccine um uh, you know, so for all, you know, to have all these groups be unvaccinated um, at the same time that we are also rolling back a lot of these um, uh, um, uh, public health uh, requirements for masking and and uh, social and physical distancing, um, 
you know, because of all those, because of all those reasons, I do not believe that at a national level, we're going to be able to reach uh, uh, herd immunity at any, at any point in time. However, I do believe that we can um, create uh, bubbles of immunity of varying sizes, uh, um, a, you know, throughout the country. So, for example, uh, you know, you can go into a hospital where the vast majority, you know, 80 plus percent of the staff are vaccinated. So there's going to be an element of herd immunity within that hospital. You can go into, say, a high school or a middle school because um, they can now get the vaccine. And if the majority of those kids are vaccinated and the staff are vaccinated, there's going to be that bubble of immunity within that school um, and, and take places like, I mean, geez, Onondaga County. Uh, for example, so I think uh, in New York, you know, the every day, the number of people who have received a vaccination at the state level or the county level or the regional level, that number is ticking up every single day because people are rolling up their sleeves. So, so I think you can have these little bubbles of, of, uh, of immunity uh, throughout the country um, and they'll coalesce in some places, but, you know, are we going to get something like we have with polio or measles? Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think. I don't think we're going to get there. Um, not, not just because there are people who are not eligible and not just because there are people who are on the fence, but because there are actually forces at work who are trying to prevent people from being immunized. Um, and I, I don't think all the forces fall into just anti-vaccine forces, but there are, you know, there are groups out there that don't want people to be immunized and, uh, um, you know, that that's, that's part of the equation as well. Would it ever be possible to eradicate this coronavirus the way smallpox has been eradicated? Uh, is it is it possible? I mean, theoretically, it is possible that if you have safe and uh, highly efficacious vaccines and you have um, the inventory of vaccines and people are provided the access uh, that they need, uh, you know, to those vaccines, yes, it is possible, but that is going to have to be a global solution because with our, with travel for business, travel for pleasure, with international commerce, with um, just people, you know, mobility in general, um, unless the whole planet is effectively immunized, there's always going to be the potential for, uh, for reintroduction. And, I mean, you can just look at the United States and measles. I mean, when we've had certain uh, enclaves or certain communities within the United States decide that they don't want to vaccinate their kids against measles, we have measles outbreaks, right? And, um, you know, that's a very recent thing that happened not too, you know, not too long ago. And it was a uh, uh, pales, you know, that, that pales in comparison to what we're experiencing now, but it just shows you that it's a very fragile balance. And uh, if there's disruption um, for any reason, then uh, the balance can tip uh, in favor of the the virus or the bacteria or um, you know whatever other pathogen we're trying to uh, we're trying to prevent people from getting infected with and get sick from. So international travel, even just to if one country achieved herd immunity, international travel would sort of always be threatening that, right? If other countries are not as diligent. In vaccinating people, won't those countries continue to put all of us at risk? Yes, I mean, you know, the, um, you know, unless we are all protected, we all remain at risk. That kind of uh, 
you know, that kind of um, messaging is, you know, it's, it's true. Obviously there are nuances to that message, but um, it's true because there are always going to be people and there are always going to be populations who cannot be vaccinated and therefore remain at risk of infection and remain at risk of being able to pass that infection on to someone else. There is always going to be the concept of waning immunity. Um, and so I'm protected today and a year from now I am not protected and we need to see how that story um, plays out. Um, and, you know, there are always, uh, and viruses evolve as we know. And so there's always the potential that as this virus passes, um, you know, from one person to another and passes through a billion or more people, uh, it could evolve in two directions. It could evolve into something that's much more um, benign, like, a, you know, the common cold or um, uh, something like that. Uh, or it could evolve into something a little more sinister that evades the immunity that we have uh, that we give to people through vaccination with the current vaccine constructs we have. Um, so for all, you know, so for all those reasons, unless there's really pretty good global coverage, uh, yeah, this thing's around for, this is going to be around for a really long time. So whether we reach herd immunity or not, this particular coronavirus is still going to be circulating. So for people who are vaccinated, it, is it safe to get on with our lives or should we keep the hand sanitizer nearby? Well, it's always good to have hand sanitizer <laughs> nearby, especially if you have kids, uh, because there's, you know, there's plenty of other things other than COVID that we want to prevent. And, you know, and one of the things that you talk to people and the, the second uh, or follow-up comment to their COVID comment is, you know, I haven't had a cold in over a year or we didn't get the flu this year, or we haven't had any of those other diseases that kids bring home from school. Um, and it's because of these very simple public health interventions, right? It's the wearing of masks, not going to school if you're sick, washing your hands, uh, you know, staying home if you're ill, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so, so, you know, do I think that people who are vaccinated, you know, so today, you know, May 28th, that people who are vaccinated, do I feel, do I believe that they are in a very safe space? I absolutely do. Um, do I believe that they can uh, shed their masks in uh, a number of uh, different scenarios that they previously could not? I absolutely do. I do it myself. If we were to have the uptake of COVID vaccines like we have for polio and measles um, and other vaccine preventable diseases where vaccination is required, uh, if we were to do that, do I think that the country could um, rapidly get back to a place that it hasn't been in, you know, 18 months? Uh, I do. I absolutely do. Um, and, you know, I, again, I was just talking about this with a colleague this morning. Every single year in this country, influenza puts about a million people into the hospital and kills about 30 to 40,000 people, including around uh, uh, 200 children every year. And no one would really say that influenza impacts you know their life that much on a year-to-year -year basis and uh you know if if we get to a moderate uh level of vaccination within the country and persistence of COVID immunity at a moderate level in this country that might be the kind of situation that we're we're headed towards where you now just have to add COVID uh to you know right next to flu as something that's going to sicken about a million people a year um, and, um, you maybe infect, uh, you know, tens of millions of people a year and it's going to kill, you know, 30 to 50,000 people a year. And, 
you know, that would be unfortunate if that was kind of the normal, but I think we could be headed. Um, we could be headed in that direction unless, you know, unless they start, unless they mandate a COVID vaccination, which is a totally different, uh, totally different discussion. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.